This is hell. Everything is going perfectly today. <laughs> Good Lord. Another end of the world is possible, and I'm quickly running towards that end of the world right now, embracing it with all my might. This is hell. And our next guest may not have seen the end of the world, but she did see the end of Iraq, having lived there in the years leading up to the U.S. war on Iraq, which began 20 years ago this week. An Iraqi who lived in the United States, but her family moved back between the two U.S. wars in Iraq when she was still school age. In Iraq's school system, she learned to love Saddam and see him as a father figure, Baba Saddam. She lived through the fear of a pending war that here in the U.S. we were being told was absolutely necessary and completely unavoidable when we knew when we now know it was not only unnecessary but completely avoidable she and most iraqis saw saddam's regime as that of a madman but to iraqis he was our madman one they understood as their own as the phrase goes better the devil you know than the devil you don't She witnessed the collapse of the dictatorship in its wake, the massive looting, including that of national treasures, which she watched from the roof of her home in Mosul. Firsthand, she experienced the U.S. soldiers as kind and young people, just like her, then experienced their devolution into being hate-filled, violent, and driven by vengeance, their own kind of madmen. Today in Iraq, she sees nothing that is sustainable, nothing that can be fixed, and a government that is run by corrupt thugs. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with Middle East Deputy Editor at New Lines Magazine, Rasha Al-Akidi, who posted the article, Living and Reliving the U.S. Invasion of Iraq. Two decades on, I can recall almost every detail of the American occupation and the years that followed. You can find her writing at newlinesmag.com. Rasha is a researcher and analyst of contemporary Iraqi politics and political Islam. Her commentary and publications focus on armed groups, radicalization, Middle Eastern geopolitics, and contemporary Iraqi politics and society. Previously, Rasha was a 2018-2019 Robert A. Fox Fellow at Foreign Policy Research Institute's Middle East program, where she served as a fellow researcher and at George Washington University's program on extremism. She was on the editorial board at Al Mesbar Research and Study Center in Dubai, where she served as a researcher and security consultant. She was also an analyst at Inside Iraqi Politics, as well as senior analyst and the head of the non-state actors program in the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute. Prior to joining the Institute, Rasha was the editor in charge of Urfa Satak, a U.S.-based platform that offers insights into post-conflict communities in Iraq and Syria through personal digital storytelling, essays, and photo collections. Her work has been featured in The Atlantic, The Independent, The National, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Associated Press, BuzzFeed, and The American Interest. She tweets at Rasha Al-Akidi, that's Rasha, R-A-S-H-A, Al-A-L-Akidi, A-Q-E-E-D-I, which all sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Like the, the kind of insight we could use so we can learn lessons from being lied into a war and then pushed into that war by the free press that's completely owned by the same corporate interests that hold far too much power over the government. Unfortunately, just a few short minutes ago, 
Rasha contacted us saying she is ill and will not be able to make it today. So we are trying to reschedule her for next week, next Wednesday. She would be our final guest for next week. But haven't heard back from her yet. And if we do, uh, we will tell you during today's show. So instead, what we will be playing is an interview from nearly 20 years ago, this exact minute, March 22nd, uh, 2003, 2003. That Saturday morning, we played the interview you're about to hear. It's Chris Tonesing, who was a fairly regular, uh, made fairly regular appearances here on This Is Hell back then. Chris Tonesing was editor of Middle East Report, and he was telling us about the reality of Saddam's Saddam's Iraq is a threat to the United States when it came to our safety and security here thousands and thousands of miles away, as well as his threat to the Middle East and the rest of the world. So, Chris, on the couple days after the beginning of the Iraq, the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq was on to explain why Saddam was not a threat to the world, was not the threat to the world that the United States and the Bush administration and the Blair administration were all making it out to be. So that's what we'll be playing in a few minutes because Russia had to cancel at the very last minute because this week is fantastic. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap the radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, we've got time. What's new by you? Uh, well, I've been catching up on my pleasure reading. And What's your pleasure reading? Uh, Fiction? Uh, <laughs> I haven't gotten, I haven't quite, quite gotten to that level yet. Uh, currently reading my favorite anthropologist, David Graeber. Um, awesome guy. He's been yep. on the show a couple times. Yep, yep. He's got a relatively recent book out that was unfortunately published uh, posthumously. Uh, the co-authored one. Yeah, I yeah. bought that and I was going to read that over my uh, summer vacation last year. I didn't even open it. Yeah, <laughs> I've, got I've, had it, to it. I've had it for two years now. I mean, it's a tome. But uh, great, you know, I've been resolving to, to to read it. Are you enjoying it? Uh, so far, so good. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, the, my, my, <laughs> that's about all I have to report right now. My, my uh, have you heard uh, uh, Pete's crazy David Graeber story? I've not. So his, um, geez, nephew went to the UK to do some summer school study. And he was uh, in the storm room with a guy that he went to school with. They didn't know anybody in England. They didn't know what to do. You know, they were bored out of their skulls. So uh, he's just, like, hanging out, and all of a sudden they smell weed from coming from down the hallway. So they follow the smell of the weed, and they knock on this door, and this guy opens the door, and they're like, hey, can you sell us some pot? And he's like, no, but I'll get you high. So they're getting high with this guy, and this happens over and over and over throughout his time that summer in the UK. So over and over, this guy just keeps getting him high. They're hanging out with him. They think he's really great. Months, years pass. He's sitting with his dad, and his dad is reading an obituary for David Graeber. And the kid says to his dad, who's that a picture of? And he says, oh, that's David Graeber, very famous anthropologist in the UK. It's really sad that he passed away. And he goes, Dad, that's the guy who got us high all last summer. That's <laughs> uh, <sighs> a great way to be remembered. Right, right. Yeah. That's a great story. I don't mm-hmm. care if it's true or not. Yep. I love every part of that story. Yep. So, yeah, this book is uh, disrupting the... The whole Western concept of the social contract and how you know civilization emerged. You know, 
so light stuff. Small, small monograph. <laughs> exactly. Right? So there has been a lot written about the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the Iraq War. Some publications are sharing older stories, highlighting their coverage of the war on Iraq and the larger war on terror. The New Republic, for instance, shared a story that was originally posted in January 2019. And so they shared this on the 20th anniversary, on uh, March 20th, on Monday of this week. So this is the headline, well, this is the headline to the article that they shared, again, from January 2019. The sum of all beards. How did facial hair win Americans, American men's hearts and minds? Thank the war on terror. <laughs> Man. Which is the greatest headline. That's I the mean, greatest headline in the world. And I, if I saw it back in 2019, I probably would have been like, well, that's dumb. <laughs> Let's I don't know. not. I've been wondering the origins for a long time. Well, let me tell you. So it's apparently a story I missed uh, then when it was first posted at their site. Or maybe I just ignored it, like I said, because it just sounded ridiculous. In fact, it's not as ridiculous as it is frightening. This is really going to creep you out. And it. <laughs> It's a story by Adrian Bonenberger and Adam Weinstein. They write, In the 21st century, America's man of the hour is a follicle farm. Hipsters affect the lumberjacks' hirsute machismo. This guy's busy with the third <laughs> thesaurus. Genteel movie stars like George Clooney and Paul Rudd tantalize paparazzi with full bushy beards. Police departments in Michigan and Texas have relaxed their officers' notoriously strict grooming standards to permit beards and goatees. Even that most American of fictional GIs, the idealistic Steve Rogers, returns from a depressive self-exile in Avengers Infinity War with a sexy beard that says, Captain America has seen some stuff. <laughs> in 2013, The Guardian hypothesized that human society had reached peak beard. Peak beard. <laughs> Though it may have appeared... I need an operational definition there. <laughs> I do, too. I want to see the flowchart. Though it may have appeared so, the ensuing years have not dampened enthusiasm for facial hair. In 2018, the razor industry nervously recorded a 5% disc <laughs> decline in sales left as men's shaving frequency continued to decline. Producers of shaving accoutrement have tried to cut prices and diversify into new grooming products, having apparently accepted that our beards are here to stay. But why is ours such a hairy century? What began this trend and what fuels it? There is an easy answer, though it leads to harder questions. We can thank the global war on terror, or the long war, or the bellum americanum, whatever you choose to call it, and I choose not to call it the bellum americanum yeah, sounds dirty for it some reason does. and the uh, or that it rings really well and the reluctance of military leaders to impose discipline on the most professional of the units that participated in the global war on terror special operations forces generals preferred to allow those units to operate based on big boy rules a devolution of authority empowering them to operate like Apocalypse Now's Mad Colonel Kurtz, quote, without any decent restraint, totally beyond the pale of any acceptable human conduct. The evidence of this is the proliferation of beards in the military, which now extends to civilian society. We worship the post-9-11 military operator. We are a nation drunk on 
tactical culture. What could go wrong? <laughs> tactical. Tactical. Oh, God. You know, I always thought your beard, Chuck, was uh, quite tactical, to be <laughs> <Yeah>. honest. <laughs> Well, it's basically it's depression. This oh, yeah. the length of my beard is tells you how depressed I am. The more clean shaven I am, <laughs> the less depressed I am. <laughs> and since being in surgery, I've been very depressed. So, uh, no. but still, suddenly, more than anything, all I want to do is go home and shave. <laughs> I just want to be clean shaven <laughs> yeah. immediately, immediately. Immediately. So, Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell? Uh, this question from hell is: What mission did you ca- declare accomplished? prematurely do you have one yet have you thought of one mm, no i mean i think that would be there, premature yeah <laughs> good lord <laughs> get out of here <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want the this is hell t-shirt tote bag the face covering the face mask the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive, featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. That's so true. We have nothing without your support. So thanks to all of you for your support, especially thanks to... Uh, Magnificent Me, Brett B, and we got a couple of other people to thank that left those over by my computer, so I'm going to have to thank those people next week. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email thisishellradio at gmail.com, and if you do, we will read your response on air, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show. When we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, Will, what is Jeff talking about during the Moment of Truth this week? Jeff has a vision of illuminated dog paws. <laughs> I like how when Lindsay read it, she said dog paws and then paused. Oh, <laughs> like a rest in music. <laughs> Very nice. So coming up, well, we were going to hear from an eyewitness to the Iraq War, which began 20 years ago this week. Instead, we're playing an interview from 20 years ago right now, an interview we did with Chris Tonesing over the Middle East Report, uh, who had been uh, was on the show to talk to us about exactly how much of a threat Saddam Hussein was to the United States of America. Uh, Will will be sharing uh, more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is how Jeff Dorchin, like we were saying, will be delivering this week's moment of truth. And we will tell you what's happening next week here on This Is Hell. We're all queued up with the Chris Tonesing interview, so staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Volkman at Goebbels connection. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> All right, you got Chris on the line? Yeah. Chris, good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, you know what? I think that you're the first person we've had on our show who requested to be on our email list before we had him on the show. <laughs> well, good for me. <laughs> so you get a cake. We're oh, sending you a you. cake. Do uh, I get to choose what kind of cake? No, I'm sorry. But there uh, might be a baby Jesus. You have two choices, chocolate or vanilla. <laughs> Chris Tonsing <laughs> is the editor of Middle East Report. Check out their website at merip.org. Uh, Chris is going to tell us about uh, kind of what led up to this war that we are in right now or have been in for 12 years. I, I guess that's uh, my first question for you is how long do you think this war has been 
been going on. You know, I've been watching international news a lot lately. Uh, I changed my cable package. I'm all excited about it. And I'm watching uh, a lot of international news now. And it looks like it, it, been look, it looked like for the last few weeks that you, uh, the United States had special operations forces in northern Iraq and that, uh, that the United States had military men within Iraq borders. So uh, how long do you think this war has been going on? Well, uh, for quite some time before the official beginning of it on March 19th, in some senses, um, I think you're right that uh, U.S. Special Forces uh, were operating not only in northern Iraq, uh, but also in uh, western Iraq, uh, looking for scud launching sites. Um, there were reports that uh, um, some very tanned and uh, sunburned uh, tall American Marines were seen in various Jordanian hotels, uh, and they were... Uh, uh, they were a little evasive about where they'd where they'd been, and uh, the reporters were assuming that they'd been in and out of Iraq on on uh, missions, uh, special forces missions there, um, and also um, the the uh, the bombing in the no-fly zones uh, has escalated dramatically. Uh, really escalated dramatically after the November 8th uh, UN resolution, which was um, uh, seized upon by the Bush administration as the legal justification for the war, and. Uh, escalated again in January and February. Um, and this, you know, it's, they changed the rules of engagement again uh, to target not only uh, missile launchers that uh, were surface to air, but also surface to surface. Um, these things were happening before um, the official uh, beginning of the war uh, on the 19th of March. So, yeah, the uh, in those senses, the. Uh, the military, U.S. military campaign uh, was underway a long time uh, before March 19th. And there's another sense, um, if you look at this uh, entire 12-year crisis since the end of the Gulf War, or really since the beginning of the Gulf War when Saddam invaded Kuwait, um, uh, there has been a sense in which the Iraqi population, the civilian population, has been in a constant state of uh, being under siege uh, ever since that time. Uh, there, the whole policy of economic sanctions has essentially uh, been punishing Iraqi civilians for the crimes of their leadership. Uh, you know, ever since uh, ever since Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and uh, Iraqi civilians also have been um, uh, subjected to periodic bombardment uh, many times uh, over the course of the 1990s uh, and into uh, this current war. So, in a sense, yes, um, there has been, uh, when the conservative commentators say that, uh, that uh, the 1990s was just one long ceasefire uh, uh, between, uh, between the end of the Gulf War and today, um, they're not entirely mistaken, although not in the sense in which they mean it. Clinton supporters would say the 90s were a time of peace and prosperity. Uh, yes, they would. Uh, not for Iraqis, they weren't. No, uh, for, exactly. For, for Iraqis, uh, the 1990s were an absolute and utter disaster. Uh, the middle class was decimated. Uh, the, the, the country was, which once had one of the most skilled workforces and uh, well-developed and vibrant uh, professional and middle classes in the entire Arab world, was cut off from all of the advances in science and technology and knowledge which occurred in that decade. Uh, and the long-term future of the country is going to suffer as a result, regardless of, of how much damage the, this immediate war does to uh, Iraq. Uh, uh, of course, the, the core infrastructure of the country was never rebuilt uh, from the damage it sustained from U.S. and British bombing in the first Gulf War. Uh, whether you look at the water sanitation infrastructure or the electrical infrastructure, 
uh, irrigation. Uh, a lot of these things were have never been rebuilt, schools, and uh, this has resulted in a pretty systematic degradation of Iraqi civilian life uh, over the course of the past 12 years. And um, that will all have to be rebuilt um, in, the, in the aftermath of this war. Uh, so, yes, for, for Iraqis, uh, um, the, uh, the last 12 years were anything but a time of peace and prosperity. And I know that you uh, you don't just focus on Iraq. You do uh, work uh, on any region in the Middle East. Uh, you're the editor of the Middle uh, Middle East Report. Again, the website is uh, merip. dot org. Uh, and I know that this is this could be breaking news. I got it uh, as uh, copied into a an email from the people at truthout. dot org. But uh, apparently there were there was heavy. Uh, rocket fire on American troops uh, in Afghanistan either earlier today or maybe it was last night. Have you heard anything about this? I haven't heard anything about that. Um, I know that uh, there has been in uh, sort of concert with the uh, beginning of the shock and awe campaign, as it's called, in Baghdad. Um, there has also been an escalation of, of U.S. bombing in Afghanistan and a, a, a step up of the military campaign there. Um, this could be part of that. And where did you where did you see that? Because I, I see they, this is the first report I've had of anything happening in Afghanistan whatsoever. I knew that there were supposedly 1,000 troops have been brought into a mountain region in uh, and I can't remember the name of the uh, part of uh, Afghanistan, Patrick uh, Province, I believe, is what it was called. That could be. To be honest, I haven't followed the news from Afghanistan very closely, and yeah. I can't remember where I heard that report. Yes, I, I'm just. I just don't think that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm afraid that Afghanistan is going to get ignored while uh, we're doing this other devastation. <laughs> it, it already year. has been for ever since. Uh, ever since the Taliban fell, Afghanistan has been ignored. That would be a continuation of a pattern. Yeah, and what do you think about uh, Afghanistan as a model for the new Iraq? Uh, well, uh, I, I, I actually. Um, I agree that that's an ever-present danger with uh, with this administration, uh, particularly if uh, if the uh, you know the day after uh, does not go as smoothly as as the neoconservatives in the administration are always predicting. Uh, it's possible that that a U.S. military presence in Iraq could become deeply unpopular at home, and that the administration could get cold feet and and, and get out for domestic political reasons leaving Iraq to an uncertain future. Um, I think it's unlikely because the big difference between Afghanistan and Iraq is that the U.S. has a pressing strategic interest in the overall region, um, namely the Persian Gulf oil. And uh, I think it's likely that uh, the U.S. is not going to want, um, uh, not going to want to leave Iraq until there is a stable government, whether it is um, a U.S.-installed government, whether it is uh, comes as a result of a coup where some high-ranking Iraqi army officer or security officer deposes the current regime and, and uh, sort of takes over and is willing to work with the U.S. and, and follow their instructions, or whether it's um, some kind of other indigenous Iraqi government. Uh, I would be surprised if, if, if the U.S. Uh, would um, uh, repeat the model of Afghanistan and uh, remain only in, in Kabul uh, and uh, 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 leave the rest of the country to sort of revert to, in some ways, a pre-Taliban situation where you have uh, individual fiefdoms controlled by some of the same warlords who 
uh, controlled those fiefdoms uh, before the Taliban defeated them in the course of the 1990s. Uh, I would be surprised if it uh, if if that is the situation. But just thank God the Taliban's not there anymore to get in the way of the heroin production that they needed to get right back into. Uh, so you said, I uh, saw a quote of you, you said that uh, there is no evidence whatsoever that Iraq is actively threatening the peace in the region or has any intention of doing so. Uh, and I heard this criticism on... Uh, well, I, I, I think I wrote that before, <laughs> before the war started. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Yes. In this context, uh, in, in this context um, it's reasonable to expect that the Iraqi regime will fire at someone. Right, but, but I'm, saying, I, I meant to, I'm sorry, I should have uh, yeah. prefaced that by saying in the prelude to war, you said that there uh, was absolutely no evidence whatsoever that Iraq is, was actively right. threatening the peace in the right. region or has uh, any intention of doing so. Uh, and uh, I, the reason I, I wanted to bring up the, the kind of this aspect of it, the legality of what's going on, is that this has been a criticism not just here in the United States of American media. I've seen the uh, same criticism on uh, the BBC, on CBC, on Journal du, uh, Deutsche Welle. They've all talked about how they, uh, you know, when they have like their letters to the editor part or their audience feedback, how they need, how they all wanted to hear more about the legality or the illegality of this war. So uh, what is the illegality of this war? I assume that not only do you think that it's an inappropriate war, that it's unnecessary, but it, that it's also illegal. It's unnecessary, unjustified, and, and illegal under international law. And, uh, and also, I think there's an argument that it's unconstitutional, uh, since Article 7 of the Constitution makes clear that the supreme law of the land needs to be uh, adherence of the United States to the various international treaties it's, it's signed. Uh, the UN Charter would be preeminent among those. And the UN Charter sets a very, very high bar for when one country can attack another. Um, the, what's in the text of the UN Charter in Article 51 is that a country has the right to self-defense when it has been attacked. Well, the United States was not attacked by Iraq before it attacked Iraq. So it does not meet that standard. Uh, there is interpretations of Article 51 which add an additional circumstance, and that is when one country is under imminent threat of attack from another, that it is justified in invoking a right of self-defense. And that's what the Bush administration has relied upon. Uh, so, uh, but it failed to demonstrate, repeatedly failed to demonstrate, that Iraq posed an imminent threat to the security of the United States, or for that matter, to anyone. Uh, except in the in the instance that Iraq was itself attacked and the survival of the regime was put into question, and then even the uh, CIA said that uh, well that is the circumstance in which we could expect Saddam Hussein to deploy uh, whatever uh, he has left in his arsenals of illicit weapons from the 1980s and 90s. Uh, so that 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 whole that test of international law was 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 not met by the Bush administration, and that is why uh, there is so much um, opposition to the war abroad and and so much skepticism about it at but, home. Unfortunately, uh, I think uh, particularly if this uh, if the war goes well uh, for the United States, uh, that whole question is going to become moot. And uh, that's um, uh, that's a, a big reason to uh, uh, they will have established a precedent which is potentially uh, quite dangerous for uh, international peace and security.
Uh, but, you know, uh, the, Reagan, the Reagan administration mined the harbors in uh, Managua of, of Nicaragua. They, uh, they uh, mined the harbors against international law, against yes. what the world court uh, wanted them to do. Uh, how could, I mean, who could prosecute this? Let's say even the war goes well, it doesn't go well, you know, out, outside of that. I mean, is, what could an American citizen do to say, you know what, this war is unconstitutional. Somebody's got to pres- you know, bring charges against the administration or whatever. I mean, what would be the next legal step within the country as far as the Constitution is concerned or outside of the country as far as the U.N. is concerned? Well, uh, you know, bodies of any body of law um, and international law is not a is not, you know, a, a body of law in the sense that it can be enforced in, in any kind of courts whose uh, authority will be uniformly respected by every state in the world. And that's a major problem with it. Uh, but any body of law, whether it's international or national, is, is only as effective as the culture which, uh, which supports it. And um, it's true, it's entirely true, that the United States is going to be able uh, to undertake various actions in its foreign policy which are not justified uh, under an international law until such time as there is a fairly major sea change in the United States domestically. Uh, about our foreign policy and about when, um, you know, when when the United States is justified in in undertaking actions and when it is not, and if there is if there is an authority of any kind that the foreign policy of the United States uh, should be uh, subordinate to or at least listened to. Um, uh, unfortunately, I think the uh, the uh, and the UN bashers and um, uh, conservatives uh, in in the United States have won the war of ideas in this country to some extent, even though the United Nations polls consistently show that the U.N. is much more popular than the U.N. bashers in Washington uh, would have it. Uh, Americans do appreciate the U.N. Uh, and yet we saw in the, in the lead-up to the war, uh, the immediate lead-up to the war in the last two weeks, um, the Bush administration's final marketing strategy was to portray uh, Bush as sort of a uh, a weary adult uh, throwing up his hands in exasperation because he'd been unable to chaperone his recalcitrant teenage wards into the position that was for their own good. Uh, he, speaking of the Security Council, of course. Right. And Americans seem to have, have bought that. They seem to have, um, you know, polls show that they seem to feel that the United States exhausted diplomatic alternatives and did everything it could to avoid uh, resorting to military a uh, military option that was not sanctioned by the relevant international body and and so we have this schizophrenia schizophrenia in in uh, american public opinion which um, ultimately can only be addressed through you know long term uh, long term public education both about uh, uh, the the potential value of international institutions and about uh, american history of flouting them and it's amazing that the uh, Bush administration can uh, so obviously go against the, co- the Constitution of the United States by not adhering to international uh, treaties and uh, not have any criticism uh, in uh, the news about uh, the you know going against 
the Constitution of the United States, which is, you know, something you're supposed to be patriotic about, not uh, French fries or whatever the case is. Uh, Chris, I want, yeah, I want to make sure that, uh, am I pronouncing your last name correctly, Tonsing? It's Tensing. It's Tensing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Chris uh, Tensing is the editor of Middle East Report. Check out their website at merip.org. Uh, you know, leading up to this war, I, I, I think that I am, I know the answer to this question. I just want to make sure that I got it right. Uh, there weren't, uh, we were, a little while ago, we were talking about the threat that Iraq posed to the region. region. Uh, did, did any country in that region whatsoever tell the United States that they needed to be defended from the military or possible military threat from Iraq? No. So, and in fact, the message to the administration was consistently to the contrary. Not even Israel. Israel didn't say that we see them as a threat. Uh, Israel um, has, in the immediate lead-up to the war, Israel has been uh, quiet about uh, whether the United States should or should not go to war. Uh, but if we look back to the summer of 2002, when the war talk was just beginning to dominate the major media, uh, both Prime Minister Ariel Sharon and former Prime Minister Ehud Barak had op-eds in um, the Post and the Times uh, calling for the United States to, to uh, uh, prosecute a war against Saddam Hussein. This has been, um, that's in keeping with a longstanding strategic vision uh, uh, on the part of the Israeli military and the Israeli right, the Likud party, that uh, the road to Jerusalem leads through Baghdad. Uh, that essentially the way to achieve peace in Israel-Palestine is to administer a spanking to um, uh, recalcitrant or rejectionist Arab regimes for um, uh, whose rejectionist position about peace with Israel uh, theoretically, in their point of view, gives the Palestinians the sort of diplomatic and and uh, uh, moral support that they need to continue to resist Israeli occupation. That's the uh, thinking in the Likud party, and that's why they say the road to Jerusalem leads through Baghdad. But uh, and that that same strategic thinking, it's no accident, is pretty well represented in the Bush administration, uh, particularly in the Defense Department and the Vice President's office, although not in the State Department and other parts of the administration. Uh, and that um, that vision, that, that idea of redrawing the strategic map of the Middle East with, to the detriment to the Palestinians has been one of the ideological strands that has weaved together with others uh, to uh, push uh, a war in Iraq to the forefront of the U.S. foreign policy agenda. Uh, but in the, in the lead-up to the war, actually, um, uh, uh, Israel has not uh, has not openly called for it, and of course, uh, that's. It's, I think it's very important to point out that that is that's one point of view in the Israeli security establishment. There are other points of view which uh, which feel that uh, doc the doctrine of preemption has actually been a failure. I mean, Israel itself has used the doctrine of preemption to justify some of its military strikes, and whatever one thinks about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, uh, I think it would be difficult for anyone to dispute that. Uh, Israel's history of preemptive strikes has certainly not brought long-term peace and security to Israel and Israeli citizens. Right. Uh, after, uh, and I want to kind of go <clears throat> back in history here a little bit, because uh, after reading some of your uh, work, I, I think there's a lot of the uh, prelude to this war 
that people either just uh, don't understand, they don't grasp, or there's, or there's information or facts out there that they're just not privy to because uh, of the media that we have here in the States. Uh, after being uh, presented with evidence that Iraq had used chemical weapons to attack the Kurds in uh, 1987 and 88, the Reagan administration blocked a Senate resolution imposing sanctions on Iraq and uh, continue to pursue good relations with the with Saddam. Even uh, Republicans like Alphonse D'Amato spoke out against Saddam and spoke out against the Reagan administration, turning a blind eye toward the gassing of the of the Kurds. So here's the Reagan administration, the uh, you know the jewel of the Republican Party, especially the, the Republican Party when you think of uh, the George W. Bush who is in power now, uh, and the uh, Reagan administration w- uh, shot down a Senate resolution to condemn and impose sanctions on Iraq for gassing their own people, as, as they say, uh, even though the Kurds aren't their own people. Uh, and to be fair, the Reagan administration, did they did do some condemnation at the time uh, of, of the uh, horrible uh, gassing of Halabja, uh, uh, but continued their embrace of uh, Saddam, Saddam's regime as well. Yet the current Bush administration often points to the gassing of or by Saddam, of his own people, uh, as a reason for going to war. So could the Reagan administration have done something back then? I know it's hindsight, hindsight is twenty twenty, but there were critics out there that were human rights advocates that were saying that we should be imposing sanctions. Is there something that the Reagan administration could have done that may have kept Saddam's crimes or uh, conquering aspirations in check at that point? Uh, well, there was a, a, a deeper history um, starting in 1984 when... Uh, when the U.S. reestablished diplomatic relations with uh, with Saddam Hussein's regime, and the, the context here is that is that the U.S. had made a decision, a strategic decision, to what it was called at the time tilt toward Iraq in the Iran-Iraq War, uh, because the view in Washington was that the primary threat to U.S. interests in that part of the world was the uh, the, the risk that uh, uh, Islamic revolution would be exported from Iran to other countries, and this, by the way, was a fear that was shared by the primary Arab allies uh, of the United States in the region, not Iraq, but rather Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. How much of that was fear and how much of that, though, was based on uh, actual potential for it to happen? I mean, what, was it over-exaggerated, that, that fear, or not? It was over-exaggerated, although it was part of the Iranian re- regime's uh, uh, rhetoric uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Ar- Iranian revolution. They did talk about uh, wanting to export uh, Islamic Revolution, and there was, um, you know, the, the Islamic Revolution in Iran did engender a great deal of respect and admiration uh, across the uh, Arab and Muslim worlds. It was, um, you know, quite a shot across the bow of the nominally secular authoritarian regimes, which still dominate the region to this day, and it did help to animate the trend of political Islam, which, um, uh, depending on your point of view, is either waxing now or waning, uh, but which did, um, uh, you know, which was the, the primary uh, strategic challenge of the authoritarian regimes uh, in the region throughout the decade of the 1990s. So it wasn't entirely illusory, uh, but uh, the, the end result of that, um, uh, although I do think it was exaggerated and um, certainly hard to feel sympathy for, uh, for the, the, the Saudi royal family um, um, having the, you know, pushing that point of view. But yeah. the, uh, the, the end result of that tilt was to support uh, the Iraqi regime in carrying out what was, at the time, after all, a war of Iraqi aggression against Iran. It was Iraq who attacked Iran. And uh, 
diplomatic relations were reestablished with Iraq uh, in 1984 after the U.S. had received lots of reports, and it was known, in fact, that Iraq had used chemical weapons, mustard gas, and other chemical weapons against Iranian troops numerous times, numerous times, uh, and you know, very, very horrible, uh, uh, very, very horrible ways. Uh, so the, you know, the, the, the U.S., um, um, and, and the U.S. was not alone, by the way. I mean, various other Western powers, Britain, Germany, France, all of them, um, and, and some, of the, some of the Western European powers uh, supplied Saddam Hussein with weapons, uh, supplied Saddam Hussein with uh, all kinds of material, uh, military material to prosecute the war against Iran. So there's a lot of blame to go around. And, uh, and it was clearly, uh, clearly a... a, a Something that was calculated to be in, in U.S. interest at the time to tilt against uh, uh, tilt against Iran in the Iran-Iraq War, but uh, the U.S. was on the wrong side in that one. And uh, Chris, uh, the Bush administration, or well, I'm sorry, U.N. weapons inspectors uh, leaving Iraq com- uh, complained of the Bush administration's tips on uh, locations of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, they were saying that there were false leads, even though the Bush administration kept saying that you know we have proof that there are weapons of mass destruction. When they released it, uh, I know that there are 25 locations. I, I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure it was 25 locations that they uh, that the United States released to the U.N. weapons inspections team in late January, early February, and all of them proved out to be duds. False False leads. One document the Bush administration was saying was proof of Iraq's attempts to currently uh, reinvigorate uh, their nuclear weapons program was uh, a fake, so much so that the FBI is currently being asked to look into who created the fraudulent document. Uh, before uh, the first Gulf War, the elder Bush said that Iraq was on the uh, border of Saudi Arabia, about to invade, yet now old Soviet satellite pictures are showing that there was no such possibility of invasion of uh, or massing of Iraqi troops. Yet this lie uh, has uh, flown under the medias and therefore the public's radar, and very few people know that the elder Bush administration outright lied to the American people in order to get support for the first Gulf War. Uh, even if this fraudulent document is traced all the way back to so let's say uh, you know George W. Bush's typewriter. You know, uh, will it make any difference, seeing as how the Saudi invasion uh, lie is not being uh, reported to the American people either? Uh, well, uh, I, I hope it will make a difference. Uh, realistically, in, in, in you know looking at uh, recent American history, uh, probably if the, if the, if the, it'll, a lot will depend on how the war goes. Frankly, I mean, if if the war um, goes well and the Bush administration can claim it as an unequivocal victory, then all of these debates which preceded the war uh, about the legality of it, about the wisdom of it, about whether or not it will cause more terrorism, uh, about uh, whether the Bush administration was honest as it uh, you know, drummed up support for war, are going to fade from, from uh, public attention and uh, going to be primarily the, the purview of uh, specialists and investigative journalists who care to find out. Um, that's an unfortunate reality that we have to keep in mind. The other, the uh, related problem there is that uh, some of the things that some of the predictions that uh, some people in the anti-war movement have made very boldly uh, may turn out to be false. It may not be true that uh, we may not see massive civilian Iraqi casualties, for instance. Hard to predict. We may not see uh, Iraq disintegrate into. Uh, squabbling factions uh, after the war. It's very, very hard to predict that. Um, 
we, we certainly may see pictures of, lots of pictures of Iraqis celebrating the arrival of U.S. troops and welcoming them as liberators. Uh, that may happen. We may not uh, uh, see a, a major terrorist attack that can be linked either directly or indirectly to the U.S. attack on Iraq. That may not happen. Uh, so I think we have to bear in mind the strong possibility that the Bush administration is going to come out of this whole thing smelling like a rose, and uh, it, they're going to, uh, they and the media will drown out uh, all of these uh, uh, criticisms of how it all came about. Now, if the war does not go so well, uh, then I think there will be greater space to talk about uh, these criticisms and to talk about how dishonest the administration was in uh, assembling its case for war. And uh, when Iraq was, because uh, I, I want to talk about the first Gulf War as well, because uh, it's kind of the precedent. It's as close as we're going to get to uh, what might happen in this war. Uh, the first Gulf War, the elder Bush, he uh, uh, uh didn't win re-election from that war. He did not win the the next uh, presidential election, uh, a lot, and it's because the economy went in the tank afterwards. Uh, it had nothing to do with uh, the amazing uh, support and approval number numbers that he had after the uh, Gulf War. They all went in the tank because the uh, economy went bad. I saw a Republican and a Democratic pollster completely agree that. Uh, people's feelings about the foreign policy of the Bush uh, government probably are not going to change. They're probably really steady right now, right where they are right now. There probably isn't going to be much of a change between now and uh, election in 2004. But if the economy does better, the Republicans said, you know, and it's going to do better, then we'll win re-election. And the Democrats said, well, if the economy does worse and he's not going to do, uh, the economy's not going to get any better, so he's not going to win re-election. Yet they were agreeing on every other part. And when Iraq was uh, massing its troops on the Kuwait border and the, and the eve of their invasion that started the first Gulf War, Arab League nations were even telling the elder Bush not to be concerned. And the Bush administration said that it was a regional affair and we are not going to get involved involved in an internal problem in the Middle East. Uh, so uh, I guess because this is something that wasn't discussed and didn't affect that that election in 1992. And so I'm curious how much the uh, foreign policy is going to affect the uh, election in 2004. Uh, how much of a diplomatic error was it of the first Bush administration to not tell Iraq to invade? Wasn't this a wholesale mistake and underestimation of Saddam's desires for conquest, not just by the Bush administration, but also by the Arab League and the whole region? Yes, it was. And uh, it was you know, a, a certain certainly was a miscalculation of of how uh, the Iraqi regime thinks, um, and you know I think that uh, you have to understand from the you know the point of view of the Iraqi regime, you have to understand the the deeper history of the U.S. Iraqi relations in the 1980s. That uh, uh, Saddam Hussein had some reason to think that um, that the U.S. was serious when it said it wouldn't uh, uh, intervene in. In, in regional problems, except perhaps on his side. Uh, so, uh, yes, but it, yes, it was a miscalculation. As far as um, how um, all of this will play out in in, in domestic politics, I, I think um, if you know there may have been a premise behind your question, which I agree with, and that is that uh, this time around it's different than the first Gulf War in terms of how. Uh, how, how much foreign policy may affect uh, how people vote. Um, its foreign policy, of course, has came came home in a rather dramatic fashion 
on September 11th. So there's there's in contrast to periods in 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 the past when uh, Americans have not necessarily uh, viscerally understood uh, the connections between uh, our foreign policy and their lives. Now they do. And so there's much more attention to it, but it cuts both ways, of course. Uh, it, it, uh, and, and, and so therefore, a lot depends how, how Americans are going to think about foreign policy as, as it relates to uh, the choice between Republicans and Democrats is going to depend on, on the outcome of the war. Now, another big problem for the Democrats is that uh, the Democratic leadership has essentially given Bush carte blanche to do what he wants to do since September 11th. And even the, the criticisms of, of the lead-up to this war, which have been voiced by you know, senior Democrats like Daschle and Kerry, uh, are, do not, are not in step with what the Democratic political base thinks. What uh, Daschle and Kerry have said is that this was essentially a failure of diplomacy and that they would have... Uh, uh, but that they, they don't oppose the uh, 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 the resort to military force itself. They just think that it could have been given a little more time in diplomacy. And that's uh, so they're not willing to voice uh, a critique of of the administration's war aims uh, or the policy of war itself uh, that is in keeping with the groundswell of anti-war dissent uh, which has uh, arisen in the country. Uh, since the issue became uh, a public subject of discussion in the late summer of 2002. And that is going to redound to their discredit in the 2004 election, it, unless, there is, uh, unless there is a Democratic nominee who has been taking a bolder position. Chris, I uh, really appreciate you being on the show with us this morning. And Chris is the editor of Middle East Report. You can check out their website at merip.org. And I've got about 40 other que- questions that I've written down here for you. And uh, I definitely want to stay in contact with you through, uh, throughout this war. I'll uh, continue to email you, and I want to uh, possibly have you back on the air again to uh, go into a lot more of uh, this in depth with you again. Uh, but i got one last question for you, and it's the question from hell. Are you ready, sir? Okay. Chris Tensing from the Middle East Report. Again, check out their website, merip.org. So every claim that President Bush has made of Iraq attempting to reignite its nuclear weapons program or any story President Bush told of Iraq doing any nuclear testing were all shot down by the International Atomic Energy uh, Commission uh, or Administration and Mohammed al-Baradei. Every one of them. So my question to you is, do you think... President Bush knowingly lied to the American people about the nuclear capabilities of Iraq. Do I think he knowingly lied to the American people? Someone in the Bush administration knowingly lied, yes. Uh, whether it was Bush himself, whether he had all the information, uh, whether he knew that, uh, that uh, he was knowingly lying, I don't know. Uh, but... Uh, the preponderance of the evidence as far as uh, as far as Iraq's nuclear program has been clear. It's it's uh, that the scientific know-how is is still there, but that Iraq lacked the necessary fissile material. That is the judgment of every everyone who studies the issue, and there was absolutely no evidence that was agreed upon. Uh, that there was uh, that there was any any reason to think that that picture was was changed. Uh, so, yes, um, if if uh, you know the the the, attempt, the it was the the innuendo that uh, that Saddam Hussein was close to having a nuclear weapon and couldn't and might give a nuclear weapon to somebody who someone who had taken in a suitcase to New York Harbor. 
uh, all of that was, uh, yes, it was a tissue of lies. And, um, and on the part of at least some people who <laughs> had access to all the information, uh, you know, again, unless there's some smoking gun out there that was never, you know, never revealed for some inexplicable reason, then yes, it was a knowing lie. It just it amazes me that we have uh, a president who, uh, as you were saying earlier, uh, uh, would go against the Constitution, would go against international law, and then uh, lie to the American people, and uh, his approval rating is over 50%. Well, so that, see, you no, not, no one should underestimate the arrogance of the people who are, occupy the White House now. I mean, they, 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 feel, they feel that, uh, that, that the United States is not only, it's not only necessary for the United States to be the world's civil superpower, but it's just and virtuous for the United States to be the world's civil superpower. And they believe they're Machiavellian. They believe that the ends justify the means. See, and here's our problem, Chris. This is why you nor I are president of the United States. We uh, <laughs> we right. don't we don't disregard the uh, uh, Constitution. We're not against international law, and we don't lie to the American public. See, have we done those things? We made the wrong career choice. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> All right, Chris. I'm looking forward to speaking with you again in the near future Anytime. as this uh, war continues on. M e r i p dot org, the Middle East Report. Thanks a lot for being on. Thank you, Chris Tensing, the editor of the Middle East Report. Now. So a couple of things I wanted to mention about that uh, interview, which was really interesting. Chris was unwilling to speculate. He was understandably cautious as to what would happen with the outcome of the war. He considered uh, if the war went well or if the war went poorly, he was considering what well, those options would be. But he argued that if the war went well, it would be good for the Bush administration. But if it went poorly then there would be some political blowback. And even potentially, he was at least implying that there would be a challenge in 2004 for the presidency from the Democratic Party if the war did not go well. And the war was not going well <laughs> only a year later. People could see this war was not going well. War crimes had already been committed in Fallujah. I believe that happened in 2004 before the election. What I don't think we knew was how much the media, and I don't think Chris understood, how much the U.S. press was going to be a lapdog and take a wartime footing as, a, you know, a, a propaganda machine uh, that was absolutely necessary and essential for the war to continue and for the Bush administration to continue to get good ratings and for the Bush administration to, even though the Kerry campaign actually, I believe it was the first time in forever that the Kerry that the campaign outspent the other one and lost. And I think the Kerry campaign had more money and still lost. The problem was that the Democrats, as uh, Chris was pointing out, were unwilling to critique President George W. Bush since 9-11. They knew that that was going to be framed as being un-American and unpatriotic, especially after we'd been attacked by uh, some foreign power who we didn't know at the time. So not doing so... By the uh, Democrats not being willing to critique the Bush administration, whether the war went well or the war went poorly, it didn't matter. With Democrats unwilling to critique the foreign policy of the Bush administration and very much having the same foreign policy, then they shot themselves in the foot for 2004. So all of this, you know, I can completely understand why Chris was being completely cautious about this, but the one thing that 
Apparently, he nor I nor everybody knew was how the media was just going to turn into a propaganda machine for the Bush administration. And I'll be talking about that in a little, uh, well, tomorrow on Patreon, so let me get to that. This is not the media. This is hell. Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what mission did you declare accomplished prematurely? Uh, Twitter's been pretty active, Sweet. so I'm going to go to the Elon Musk playground here. Um, Jamie K. says, I may have prematurely declared world peace. <laughs> Doesn't seem to be happening. <laughs> yeah, By the way, I think the best way to refer to the U.S.-U.K. war on Iraq is the war on Iraq. The war on Iraq. That's a good one. The, I like that better than the Iraq War. I like it better than the Second Persian Gulf War. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, the war on Iraq. That sounds about right. That's right. Um, there's been a similar turn in uh, amongst historians referring to uh, the war with Mexico as the war on Mexico. As oh, really? The Mexican War. American War. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It gets renamed every decade or so. Exactly. I, saw, I just saw a memorial over in Indian Boundary Park uh, for somebody who died during the First World War, and the marker says 1918, the Great War. Oh, yeah. Because there wasn't a second world war yet. Yeah. So. Thank God they didn't call it the first world war, because <laughs> yeah. that would imply there's going to be another one. Hey, that would be real bleak. Yeah, it would be. Um, Ahmad S. says, filing and payment of my taxes. <laughs> <laughs> timely and Very topical. Very timely and topical. Uh, Eat Farts 69, uh, old friend of the show, says, happiness. All lowercase, by the way. Um, <laughs> I noticed that, too. I thought that was odd. <laughs> yeah. uh, Michelle says, I trusted... A men's health article from June 2020 that said that the pandemic would be over spring 2022 and honestly believed what I was saying. You know, I, I, I remember seeing that article. I was looking it up in my notes and I couldn't find anything. But I, I think I made a reference to it in early 2020, like around June 2020, about that men's health journal <laughs> article that was just ridiculous. I think I was talking to epidemiologist Rob Wallace about it, and he was saying, yeah, we, you know, this is a kind of virus that just doesn't, it does, doesn't just go away. <laughs> st- it was like SARS is still around. AIDS is still around. The original SARS is still around. The original, you know, AIDS is still around. HIV is still around. It's like these things don't go away. They just don't. That's not how the viruses work. <laughs> so, yeah, I remember that, too. Yeah, I mean, they got to stick to their lane of selling supplements and uh, giving sex advice, right? Exactly. Uh, Carlos Marx. In, in that order, by the way. Carlos Marx, triple X. I love that. I do, too. Um, do you think Tom Cruise will ever accomplish his mission that's impossible? I mean, come on, what are we on the eighth movie now? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How many? The mission is clearly possible. <laughs> it ends, every one of those missions is very possible, just like the TV series. <laughs> Mission possible and probable and will be solved at the end. <laughs> it's really a procedural. Exactly. <laughs> just another procedure should have been the name of the movie. <laughs> Whole uh, chain. JS says lifetime, mem- lifetime lifelong membership in the middle class. Earlier, maintaining a decent credit score, going back even further, because why not? Uh, (laughs) Basic financial independence, even further back, obtaining an education sufficient for a reasonably well-paid career doing non-hellish work. Wow. Wow, all right. That's kind of bitter. Oh, let's see. We have Nick E., marriage and divorce. (laughs) Nice. Both. Nice. Both, yeah. 
Uh, Mike the Giga Grouch, uh, adulthood. All right. All right. And then hasn't over accomplished on that yet either. Facebook. There's many of us in that uh, situation. Estelle S says staring into the abyss. <laughs> Thank you. David R says the end of capitalism. <laughs> uh, George P, uh, my vasectomy and conception of my firstborn son. This is the <laughs> second vasectomy reference. It is, but question. at least, but this one, the first one, did not say that it ended up in his firstborn son. It was just yeah. a vasectomy that, that was, was an issue. That was leaving me in suspense. I know. Um, see, Just like a vasectomy. <laughs> exactly. Right. You don't know. You don't know if it took. And then uh, lastly, Kim G says cleaning the toilet. <laughs> nice. Classy, Kim. Again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, which we will be announcing after Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. They will win their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can find all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can still do it there. This Is Hell Radios. Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. Or you can tweet it at us at This Is Hell Radio. Or you can email it to us at, at This Is this is hell radio at gmail.com. But again, we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. And one more time, Will, what is Jeff up to during this week's moment? Jeff has a vision of illuminated dog paws. <laughs> see, too much acid, I think. That's how you see illuminated <laughs> dog paws. And they're my hands. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, a bonus podcast, which streams weekly and is podcast shortly after at the same place. Patreon.com slash this is hell. This week's Patreon will be produced by Alexander Jerry. So if you want to know what Alex has been up to, you are going to need to be a subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell. And as this is the 20th anniversary of a war crime initiated by a president who has oddly high approval ratings still, even among Democrats, I'm reflecting back upon the earliest days of what the media was calling the run-up to war with Iraq, as if it was inevitable and there was nothing we could do about stopping it. From 9-11 to the invasion, everyone's world seemed to be turned upside down, which it was by a mountain of lies that were then given bipartisan approval as the U.S. launched another war against a nation that had experienced over a dozen years of debilitating economic sanctions that only further empowered Saddam Hussein and his iron fist over the Iraqi people. Also on Patreon, it's going to be the second part of our new three-part series on the war on Iraq, as it was being discussed here on This Is Hell at that time. Last week, we heard a March 15, 2003 conversation we had with Institute for Policy Studies' Sarah Anderson, who had just posted an article titled Coalition of the Coerced, which showed how intimidate, U.S. intimidation and bullying had to be used against supposed allies to get their support for the ill-fated war. So this week, we are going one week later to March 22nd, 2003. The interview that we just played uh, with Chris Tonsing was from earlier in that same four-hour Saturday morning show that was live on WNUR uh, when we discussed the disinformation campaign that led to war. That's in the March uh, 22nd, 2003 interview. We will be playing tomorrow on Patreon. Our guest was our 
go-to expert on all things Middle East at the time, Dr. Stephen Zunis, uh, professor of politics and international studies at the University of San Francisco and author of the 2003 classic Tinderbox, U.S. Foreign Policy and the Roots of Terrorism. But the only way you can hear me walk down grim memory lane and be reminded of the lies that led to war and how here, and this is how we, we were one of the very, very few places you would hear those lies called out for what they were. The only way you can have, hear that is by subscribing to Patreon. This is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Again, if you do become a subscriber to This is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all our merchandise that you can find uh, right now at this is hell.com. Uh, but uh, when you click on support, but you also get access to over 350 past Patreon podcast. That's like, I don't know, two, maybe three years of additional This Is Hell with each and every one of those podcasts featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently is not available anywhere else online. If you want to hear what I was saying, for instance, at the very early stages of the pandemic when I was doing a daily monologue on the show, uh, you can hear that. You can hear those on uh, Patreon as well at patreon.com slash this is hell. And if you want to contribute to the sustainability of This Is Hell, if you would like to continue hearing the show for free on a regular or a regular daily or weekly basis, please show your support by becoming a Patreon patron or just going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We also want to make all 26 years of the show available to everyone, again, for free. Remember, none of us here on This Is Hell earn anything from the show other than what we get through your support. You may think, well, they're now on four radio stations as well as an internet radio outlet in the UK, so they must be raking it in, but we are definitely not. We give that show away to all of our outlets for free, probably not a good idea, for nothing, and the only way we can and the only way we want to do this is by being completely 100% listener-supported. We do not, nor will we ever take any money from any commercial sponsors, nor will we ever accept any corporate grant or foundation money because we do not want to be beholden, be beholden to any entity or person other than you the listening audience so show your appreciation by becoming a patreon patron at patreon.com slash this is hell or just go to this is hell.com and click on support coming up jeff with the moment of truth the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell and we will be announcing this week's winner we'll also tell you what's happening on next week's this is hell live from hangover country this is hell and i know you have jefe on the line what The dog's illuminated feet. The bartender at the Surly Goat used to walk his dog after his shift at around 2.30 a.m. It was a good time to walk his dog because no one else was out walking a dog. The bartender's dog, whose name was Governator, did not get along with other dogs. Worse yet, when he spotted another dog on a walk, Governator would lie down and pretend to be submissive and eager to play. Other dogs would be fooled by this ploy and come near enough for Governator to leap to his feet and bark angrily in the other dog's face, sometimes even biting them. As a dog, Governator was a dick. 
Usually during these walks, the off-duty bartender would take Governator strolling down an unpaved alley. It was a sandy road with a high wall on one side, behind which were a Tudor house that was the home of an aged ingenue and a grove of magnolia and sycamore trees. On the other side were two big estates with gated driveways letting out onto the alley. The gates were sliding walls that opened electrically. Each gate had about four inches of clearance at the bottom. When the backyard lights were on, that light would come through the clearance space at the bottom, and whenever Governator would walk past these gates, his paws would be illuminated. The surrounding night was often dark enough that one could almost imagine those paws were disembodied animal feet strutting along by themselves in the shadows. Sometimes the bartender would stop and look up through a rear window of the Tudor home of the aged ingenue. There was only one window visible to him. It appeared to look in on a small room. When the light in the room was on, he could see only the ceiling of the room as he was looking into the window from at least 15 feet below. It was a vaulted ceiling, symmetrically divided into four teardrop-shaped vaults, very medieval in appearance. This went along with his feeling that the aged ingenue was some sort of witch. She was extremely pale. She had been just as pale when she was younger, when she had been the romantic partner of an actor who began his career playing an Old West gunfighter in many Italian westerns and an extremely violent cop in slightly later films. She was so pale, her skin verged on transparency, like that of a fetus. It was an especially frightening look for an elderly woman. Her age, transparency, reclusiveness in the Tudor house, and the vaulted ceiling together contributed to a ghastly, spectral air about her being. To the bartender, she was not just a witch of some kind, but a witch half in and half out of our plane of existence. Our bartender, whose name, by the way, was Hadrian, had never met the aged ingenue, yet for some reason he had a feeling she disapproved of him. All the bartenders at the Surly Goat were unpleasant people, and Hadrian was no exception. He was brusque with customers and had no time for questions. When anyone had the temerity to ask one, he often lied if he didn't know the answer, and sometimes even when he did. Hadrian was impatient with Governator now and then. He tried not to be, but sometimes he just couldn't help himself. Governator was a rescue dog, and his previous owner must have beaten him because his first instinct when anyone reached out their hand to him was to cower. But he always came around to being amiable, at least with people. Hadrian was careful to respect Governator's boundaries, but not always as careful as he should have been. One day, Governator was fussy about eating, about going for a walk, and about having a bath. Hadrian wasn't being mindful of his own temper. He sort of shut down while dealing with Governator on this fussy day and didn't notice he was being impatient or short with the dog. On the evening walk, Governator bolted away, pulling the leash from Hadrian's hand and darting out into the street where he was struck by an Amazon truck and killed. During the events of the accident, and death of Governator, the yanking and darting and screeching of brakes too late, and the striking down of the dog, Hadrian could swear he saw somewhere in his field of vision a flash of the image of the transparent aged witch. He knew her animosity toward him must have played a part in the awful proceedings of the day culminating in Governator's death. For weeks afterward, Hadrian mourned the death of Governator, 
He didn't change his behavior, though. He was still a dick to customers at the Surly Goat, but his heart wasn't in it. He was a dick to everyone. Mostly, though, he stayed in his apartment in Studio City, moping and brooding. I wish I could say Hadrian was a big fan of Elon Musk, but he wasn't. I wish I could say he was a fascist, but he was more of a centrist Democrat in spirit and political leaning, which is certainly bad enough. Really, though, he wasn't an evil sort, just a bit petty at times, but often quite generous. He could even be a delightful friend when he put in the effort. He certainly didn't deserve his fate. But does anyone deserve their fate? You see, one moonless night, he was walking back from picking up a jug of cheap vodka from the Minimart. He was walking through an alley, not the one where he used to walk Governator, more of a typical urban alley with garbage and asphalt. There were no lights in the alley, and what luminance spilled in from the perpendicular streets abutting it was sparse at best. So it was all the more eye-catching when Hadrian's peripheral vision picked up a flash of light. He turned his head and saw disembodied paws walking at a perky trot through the alley. He followed the luminous paws all the way to the end of the alley and out onto the street. But the rest of the animal's body wasn't suddenly revealed in the light. It remained only the feet, glowing about twice as bright as any other object in the area, strutting jauntily down the sidewalk. Adrian asked a fellow pedestrian, Do you see that? See what? asked the transparent elderly ingenue, whose sudden manifestation shocked Hadrian so much that he began to gag on his own spit. At that point, a crazed entourage of well-to-do tweakers beat Hadrian to death with lengths of rebar. It was such a meaningless end. The entire trajectory from Hadrian's adoption of Governator to his being pummeled by a tweaking entourage was an amoebic blob of random moments without a shred of sense to their happening. Even his bitchy friend Agnes, another bartender at the Surly Goat, who had an annoying habit of saying, everything happens for a reason, couldn't think of a reason for any of it. Agnes also said things like, the energy you put out is what you get back, and if you can't take me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. In the opinion of many people, she should have been the one to get pummeled to death. But, as the book of Job implies, justice is the creation and therefore the responsibility of humans. Nowhere else in the universe does it exist. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. <laughs> Thank you, Jeffy. And unbelievably, despite the fact that our guest canceled today, we're up against the clock. Oh, well, uh... Good thing you killed a lot of time. Yeah, I did. Thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate it, my friend. Uh, until you are ne- welcome. Until next week. What? Stay beautiful. Oh, God. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want that is currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and share the rest of our listeners' answers. This week's question from hell is what mission did you declare accomplished prematurely? Uh, We have a couple more responses. All right. All right. Uh, On Facebook? Are Um, these the ones that leads from Facebook or where are these from? uh, Let's see. Facebook is all accounted for. We have one more on Patreon and one more on Twitter. Okay. So on Twitter, uh, Napoleon Boner Pills. (laughs) 
says, I was the guy in the horror movie that said, thank God that's over. <laughs> that's, all, that's always a bad part of the movie mm-hmm. for that person. Yep. And then uh, our last Patreon contribution says, from Chris T., a mildly socialist UK Labour Party. <laughs> that is a good answer to the question from hell. So the answers I liked most were uh, Tom D saying history, Edson Castillo saying or Castillo saying uh, world domination, Fabio L saying growing up, Craig J saying my vac- my vasectomy. Thanks a lot, Doc. Uh, Little drippy DDs <laughs> should win at least for the name there. Saying blissful ignorance, Chris T. As uh, Will was just saying, a mildly socialist UK Labour Party that would be nice. Uh, Ahmad S. Saying filing and paying payment of my taxes very timely. Uh, Eat fart sixty nine saying happiness and it is not capitalized. Nick E. Saying marriage and divorce. Korg saying the war on terror. That mission is endless. Mike the Giga Grouch saying adulthood, SLS saying staring into the abyss, David Rod saying the end of capitalism, and the other vasectomy one, George P saying my vasectomy and the conception of my firstborn son, which is like icing on the cake, Kim G saying cleaning my toilet, and Ray O saying growing up. Uh, other, you know, Fabio said, and or, uh, Mike the Giga Grouch said uh, adulthood, so pretty much on the same lines as Ray O. But that makes this week's winner clearly George P. My vasectomy and the conception of my firstborn son. Congratulations, George. All you have to do is send us your mailing address and tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. All you have to do for that is just go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all of our stuff. And uh, when you do that, we'll get uh, the whatever merchandise you want in the mail immediately. My answer to this week's question from hell, what mission did you uh, declare accomplished prematurely? Well, for Lent, I said I was going to give up the five-day work week in favor of four days, even if that meant working 12, even 13-hour days. Well, since Lent began, I have not been working four-day work weeks, unfortunately, or five-day work weeks, but seven-day work weeks. So thanks, Lent, for proving yet again I cannot accomplish whatever mission I set out to do. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. We truly appreciate you playing along, and I wish we had consolation prizes for each and every one of you. Will, who will be joining us as our first guest next week? Our first guest next week is Kadada E. Williams, author of I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. Kadada researches African-Americans' experiences of racist violence at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, where she teaches courses on African-American history, U.S. history, and historical research methods. And then our guest who was going to be on Tuesday's show, who's that? Uh, returning to This Is Hell will be Murtaza Hussein, a reporter at The Intercept who focuses on national security and foreign policy. We will talk to Murtaza about his most recent writing, including How Iran Won the U.S. War in Iraq, a treasure trove of secret intelligence cables obtained by The Intercept reveals Tehran's political gains in Iraq since the 2003 invasion. And trauma never goes away. As America forgets, Iraq war stays with U.S. veterans. So, yeah, a whole bunch of new uh, treasure trove, as you're saying, of uh, secret intelligence cables obtained by the Intercept reveals Tehran's political gains in Iraq since the 2003 election. 
So, or invasion, I'm sorry. Invade, it was definitely not an election. <laughs> uh, since the two, 2003 invasion. So, uh, yeah, more documents about that proving how this is a huge mistake in U.S. foreign policy. And again, we want to stress this was a very bipartisan U.S. foreign policy. In the 2000 debate between uh, Gore and Bush, the uh, moderator, uh, McNeil from the McNeil Lair Report. He's uh, no, it was Tom Lair uh, from the McNeil Lair Report. He said that uh, he couldn't find he, during the debate over foreign policy. He couldn't find one place where Gore and Bush disagreed on foreign policy. He even said to them, "Is there anywhere you disagree on foreign policy?" And they both smiled at each other and they said, "I guess not." So, this was very much the result of a bipartisan policy. This is why bipartisanism can often be. A terrible thing. A huge thank you to all of this week's producers, Will Ippen, Lindsey Gorey, Dan Hill. Thanks to Jeff for doing another Moment of Truth. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for This Week in Rotten History, to Sebastian Vupper for another Past Inside the Present, and to Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, who will be producing tomorrow's Patreon, and Theron Humiston, just become, because, just become. Talk to you tomorrow, Friday on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell when I'll look back at the earliest days of the war on terror and the completely unnecessary war on Iraq and we'll be sharing a 20 year old interview from the beginning of the war about the disinformation the outright lies by the war criminal President George W. Bush and his entire administration as well as everyone in the House and Senate who voted for the war all of whom have blood on their hands that none of us should ever allow them to wash off but instead They've all done very well by themselves. Career boost and making a lot of money from that war. Pretty crazy. Who knew lying a nation into a war could be so good for your bottom line as well as your career? Only in America. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>